calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Episode 136. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your ghost, Norm Sherman. Oh, do come in. Sit down and make yourselves at home. I've got a supple young child warming up in the oven. Can I offer you a soft drink in the meantime? Golly, has it really been a whole year? (laughs) Time sure flies when you're a lost, restless soul forced to wander the earth, tormented and alone for eternity. (sighs) You look well, though. I did happen to hear through the grave shrine that you living folks had somewhat of a difficult year yourselves, what with your economies and banks going belly up and all. You know, if those bailout plans don't work, I know a good ancient Indian burial ground just up the road. Good folks, sure to reanimate, uh, uh, stimulate your economy in no time. Oh, and then there's your big healthcare dilemma. More pointless than tits on a ghoul, if you ask me. Oh, does Junior have a tummy ache? Well, I've got your public option right here, little fella. That one's on the house. Are you tired of rising insurance screamiums? Well, just write your crip representatives in Congross in support of the Mediscare program. <laughs> All right, who the f let Editor Kendall out of the cellar? Todd, was that you? 
I told you I'm trying to f***ing record in here. Oh, for God's sakes, he's peeing on the carpet now. I'm not cleaning this up. All right. All right, Kendall, you can stay. Yeah. So, this Halloween, love is in the air, strong and pervasive, like the scent of a decaying corpse or an Indian buffet. One of our favorite Drabblecast contributors, Kevin Anderson, is celebrating his 10th wedding anniversary. <laughs> and another, Anne Sauer, is getting married herself the day after Halloween to her best friend of eight years. Oh, shut up. Beelzebub, this is supposed to be the Drabblecast frickin' Halloween special, not TLC's A Baby Story. What better way to commemorate unholy matrimoning than with a hundred-word Drabble story written by the bride-to-be herself? It's called, And Then the Whole Town Gets Their Brains Eaten. Anne currently lives in Houston, where she works for a non-profit that has produced an internet-based program to teach math to children, and she has two very adorable kitty cats. Okay, that's it. I give up. Why don't we all just go rent a f***ing Meg Ryan film? Happy frickin' Halloween, everyone! zombie flicks, someone always shows up raving about how the dead have risen and are attacking the living. And the idiot who answers the door just goes, are you crazy? That's impossible. And then the whole town gets their brains eaten. I always figured that if I was the one who opened the door, I'd be skeptical, yeah, but I'd at least check out the situation, just in case. But now, here you are at my door, saying these insane things, begging me to call the military and follow you to the cemetery. I'm sorry, but you're nuts. Our feature story this week is a Lovecraftian tale of madness and horrors unspeakable called The Great Old Pumpkin by John Agard. John lives in Seattle with his wife, Arthur Victoria Garcia, and a porky cattle dog named Midge. When he's not geeking around with those two, he's mostly taking pictures and writing comics and short stories. For more of his work, check out his website at johnzo.com. So, without further ado, The Great Old Pumpkin by John Agard. You must know, doctor, that I did not choose to seek psychiatric help. I have no faith that I shall exit this room a healed man. I know now that I have been destined for the asylum since childhood. No mere conversation with you can steer me clear of that fate. That said, 
Let us proceed with this court-compelled farce before my mad prattle provokes your crabbiness further. As you are no doubt aware, I am the issue of solid Dutch stock, the prosperous Van Pelt family of St. Paul. Mine was a comfortable and happy childhood, and I spent much of it in the devoted service of the great old pumpkin. For him, I cultivated an annual pumpkin patch, mostly autumn gold and Big Macs, as I thought he would find the Atlantic Giants tacky. I also evangelized him in the community, relating the tale of how every year on Hollow Mass Eve, the day when the spiritual most strongly encroaches on the substantial, this mightiest of gourds would rise to revel across the world with the most sincere of his adorers. My neighbors were understandably skeptical. After all, not once had this super-being ever chosen to grace my pumpkin patch or any other place in our town. I vowed that I would coax him into my backyard, and I set out in the manner of a learned man to discover how I might do this. This quest led me into moldering libraries, cramped basement antiquaries, far-flung correspondences, and, on one occasion, frightening and persistent telephone conversations with a lunatic in Boston. The last raised alarms in my family. I promised them I would turn away from my studies, all the while resolving to continue them in secret. I committed everything I know to memory, burned all of my papers, and embroidered my most unfathomable and precious secrets in near-invisible thread on my security blanket, which as you can see, Doctor, I carry still. My continued investigations led me to certain grim texts detailing eldritch and macabre sincerities, chants, auto-sacrifice, sinister configurations of pumpkins, which would bait the great old pumpkin to my patch. On the hollow mass eve of two years ago, my investigations bore fruit, so to speak. I believe that I saw him, orange, flaming, and magnificent, hovering above me for an instant, and then vanishing skyward into the constellations. Having tasted this small success, I knew that I could not simply sit and await him, but that I must seek him out. Thinking that such a search would be best conducted aloft, I decided to hire an airplane. My modest allowance raised complications, though. It took me 11 months and three weeks to save up a sufficient sum. With that money jangling in my pocket, I struck out for the aerodrome and asked after a pilot skilled in night reconnaissance. The mechanics there, diminutive, jaundiced fellows, directed me to a small, French-themed cafe alongside the airstrip. There, I met my pilot. He was a veteran of the war, with a characteristically large Gaelic nose and sharp black eyes that peered from just underneath the seam of his leather flying cap. He nursed his root beer silently, his manner that of the haunted serviceman, and let his two friends supply the conversation. 
On his left sat a pretty French girl whose eyes were completely obscured by heavy spectacles. On his right sat a chattering yellow fellow, kin by his looks to the mechanics in the hangar. I approached and sat down with them to explain my business. Sounds dangerous, sir, the French girl said when I was finished. The pilot's small yellow friend warbled at us in a strange language, Aramaic, perhaps. The pilot waved away this concern and nodded at me, indicating he would accept my contract. We set an appointment for dusk on the eve of Hollow Mass, only five days distant, and I left him to his friends, leaving as a gift a jug of root beer. On Hollow Mass Eve, I found at the aerodrome a scene of reassuring efficiency. Mechanics fluttered over my pilot's machine, a Sopwith model that was, like him, a veteran of the war. They poured it full of fuel and caster lubricant, and fed long belts of brass cartridges into the breeches of its Vickers guns. I was surprised that we would be going armed, but after a moment's thought, I was again reassured. An attitude of constant readiness befitted my pilot as a man of action and a daredevil. The crew chief noticed me, and I was instantly incorporated into his bustle. He and his fellows boosted me into an observer's cockpit that had been cut into the fuselage behind the pilot. In their chirping Aramaic, they intimated to me that I would need some kind of headgear, so I wound my security blanket around my head and face in the manner of a Bedouin tribesman. Over this arrangement, the mechanic snapped a pair of goggles, and I felt snug as one of the Vickers gun's chambered bullets. My pilot appeared then, climbing a ladder and vaulting into the Sopwith. I scourged him on the head to indicate my readiness, and without delay, he barked out the orders to start his engine. The aeroplane chugged to life, instantly suffusing the air with a hell-hot mixture of castor oil and petroleum vapors. The pilot's silk scarf flapped before me as we bumped off the grass and onto the airstrip, and within 200 feet the Sopwith was aloft and headed for Eau Claire, where one of my correspondents maintained a very sincere pumpkin patch. The Sopwith climbed swiftly, and soon we encountered the first layer of clouds. The air grew wet and unsatisfying, and utterly dark save for the flames jetting from the Sopwith's exhaust ports. Unaccustomed to the altitude, I dozed, until a sudden roll to starboard jerked me awake. I sat up in my seat, searching the skies for whatever had drawn my pilot's interest. We had emerged from the clouds into a supernaturally clear night, with all of creation spreading out in a great inverted bowl around us, and before us. Just this side of the horizon was a faint orange glow upon the clouds. Within a few minutes, the speedy Sopwith had overtaken the glow. My pilot descended until our landing wheels were skimming the orange-suffused clouds and then began to circle slowly. My watch said we'd been in the air for 55 minutes. We were approaching the limits of our safe endurance. I closed my eyes and prayed that my quest not have been in vain, that I'd be allowed to see the great old pumpkin, and as I whispered the last beseeching word, I heard my pilot yell, 
There, not more than a thousand yards off our port wingtips, was the great old pumpkin himself, ascending from the clouds as smoothly as if he were born by a Manhattan elevator. He was as magnificent as I had imagined. His stem rose majestically from a creamy orange body of heartbreakingly perfect radial symmetry, and bountiful vines streamed behind him like hair from Botticelli's Venus. My eyes were suddenly wet with tears, and I realized that I had reached one of those measuring lines by which we gauge life's progress, that all days after this one would be ineffably different from those that had gone before. We came out of our turn and headed directly for the great old pumpkin. I suddenly remembered my camera, stowed on the floor of the Sopwith's observer cockpit. I bent to retrieve it, all the time keeping my eyes riveted on my subject, which then whirled and presented its face to us. The camera fell from my nerveless fingers and into the clouds below as I beheld this blood-curdling horror. Instead of friendly cross eyes and gapped teeth, into its wide orange visage were sawn jagged spirals of alien script, and though of course I could not read the glyphs, simply witnessing them was enough to understand their meaning. They dragged my mind away to their subject places, each of them impressing upon me a cavorting pageant of despair and rot. Worse than that was what lay behind those awful incisions, for instead of a candle, or for safety reasons, a lantern, within the great old pumpkin burned a queer kind of furnace that was tended by thready, murmuring minions. This furnace emitted not light and heat, but rather madness, and with horror I realized that its emanations were not illuminating the clouds, but rather that the clouds were fluorescing under them, just as a squid will fluoresce under certain radiations. I shrank from this dread emission, pulling my head down into the observer's cockpit. My thumb instinctively found my mouth, and I clutched my security blanket, which had escaped my head somewhat. I sought to reassure myself with the familiar chapter of the Gospels. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled, I shouted to myself. And there were shepherds out in the fields. I bring you good news of great joy that is born this day in the city of David. But of course, it was useless. The madness shone through our fuselage as if it were air. I felt my mind changing, unraveling as I bathed in it. Certain parts of my psyche withered to dust, others swelled like an autumn squash. My very essence was reshaped, as was the Pompeii of antiquity. Time ran strangely in the thing's proximity. It seemed I had lived ten years before my ordinarily quick-witted pilot reacted. I can imagine no more pitiful response than the one he chose. He drove us directly at the thing and reached for the triggers of his Vickers guns. Their sound was hollow and far away, and their flashes mere sparks before the luminous glory of the pumpkin. 
Dive! I screamed at him, but that sound was lost with all the others. My pilot's gloves seemed to have froze on the machine gun triggers. We crawled towards the terrible thing, spitting impotent tracers. I slapped my pilot's shoulder, and this finally galvanized him. He ceased firing and nosed the sop with over, sending us plummeting beneath the thing. One of the thread-like tenders glanced over its shoulder at us as we passed the lowermost incision. Then, from somewhere in the ventral portions of that awful fruit came a response, a white-hot hail of eldritch fire that lashed us and drilled pumpkin-seed-shaped holes in the Sopwith's wings and fuselage. Our engine's tenor suddenly became uncertain. My pilot shook his fist and cursed our enemy. Then we plunged into the coal-mine black of the clouds. I was strangely calm as we fell. The sudden, smashing death from a high-altitude crash would be a small toll to pay to escape the grasp of that dread orange being. The worst horror, though, was yet to come. The pilot re-established control of the plane just as we emerged from the clouds. For a brief moment, my sense of self-preservation reasserted itself, and I was flooded with relief. But then I saw the sight that ended my life as a normal man and ushered me into true understanding. Beneath us, in all the fields of Wisconsin and Minnesota, stretched a star field of pumpkins, their luminous orange faces turned upwards toward their god, their mouths wailing mockery of all civilized life. My pilot could not resist this damned noise. He also howled tribute skyward. The sound overwhelmed me, and I fell feebly at my feet. I have no further memories of that night. Somehow my pilot must have regained enough of his senses to fly us home and put me in a taxi cab. I awoke in my own bed at sunrise the next morning. The orange stains and pumpkin seed holes in my security blanket testified that my awful adventure had been no mere dream. I will admit that sometimes I feel a temptation to seek out the pumpkin again, and perhaps learn more for the experience. This impulse is the only lunatic thought alive within me. The cyanide-laced candies I have mailed to my correspondents, the jars of petrol I have flung into the antiquaries and museums, the shootings at the aerodrome cafe, these are the actions of an eminently sane man. You see, Doctor, while I cannot claim full knowledge of that sinister gourd, I know this much. We cannot risk another encounter with him. If some fool shall call him up again, he shall be no more kind to us than the plow is to the anthill. The only record of my foolish pursuit that I dare allow to survive is my precious security blanket. I have embroidered upon it certain spells and rituals which I hope will serve as a bane to him so that he will be unable to approach this world. You confiscate it at your peril. Yet these good-hearted efforts may still come to nothing. Still, his servants campaign in the neighborhoods as I once did. 
Not long ago, a cherubic boy came to call on me to tell me of the great old pumpkin. Since then, I have made it a practice to keep my household firearms loaded and in convenient proximity to the front door. So that is my story, Doctor. I see you leaning over your plywood desk, ready to dispense your wisdom, to say the words that will cure me and free the world of one more mad menace. But before you speak, consider this. To truly heal me, you must reform the cosmos itself. Your words must leap from your mouth and cascade across the universe, undoing all of the uncaring, unfathomable things that lurk outside our cozy cave of a planet. Can you do this, Doctor? Can you? I see the fear in your face. Oh, come now, Doctor, what say you? Stay out of stupid pumpkin patches, blockhead. Five cents, please. Well, Linus himself said it best back in 1966. There are three things I've learned never to discuss with other people. Religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. Oh, 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 what's that, Kendall? You smell something burning? Oh my, I was so engrossed in the story that I've completely forgotten to take the supple young child from the oven. Oh, bollocks. Well, I hope you like your bratty eight-year-old a la orange, a bit on the crispy side. The Drabblecast, however, is produced medium rare with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it or sell it, but share it with your good friends and neighbors. If you enjoy the show, please chuck us a donation via the PayPal links on our website, www.drabblecast.org. Some of us have hungry mouths to feed. Speaking of which, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, wishing you a happy Halloween and reminding you to watch out for dyslexic zombies. They want your snarb. Pumpkin. 
never ever been seen Never ever been seen Don't be late Pumpkin great Pumpkin good Pumpkin great Pumpkin good Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.